Well, today we are wrapping up our series called Giants, and uh, we've been asking the question, what are you facing? And I hope as you've been asking yourself that question uh, that you have uh, been realizing what it is that you're facing, what the giants are uh, in your life that uh, are set there to attack you. And I know many of you have gained freedom, and many of you are experiencing victory, and we want to know about that. And you can email uh, us at stories at tcabc.com and tell us your stories and, and uh, tell us the story of freedom and victory. Several weeks ago, we gave you some rocks uh, to take and to use when we started the series, uh, talking about David and Goliath. And we asked you to take that rock and write on it a scripture reference and uh, use it as a, a uh, memorial, <clears throat> whether it's on your kitchen table or your coffee table, praying to remind you to pray about the giants that we're facing and to use the word uh, as the sword. And so beginning next Sunday, you can start bringing those back. And we're going to use all those rocks with all those scripture references written in it on April 1st, Sunday night, April 1st. We're going to do an evening service, a special service over at the Midtown campus. And uh, we will use those rocks in the parking lot and in the concrete or in the sidewalks or somewhere. Uh, They will go into the foundation on that property. But today, as I wrap up uh, this series and we look at one giant, uh, I've been giving you strategies from the life of David to slay the giants in your life, uh, but today I think is, is the biggest giant in particular, quite honestly, for most of us, but in fact, all of us are going to face this giant. And, and from David's life, we've been learning how to fight giants. We talked about the giant of rebellion. <clears throat> we talked about the giant of loneliness. And uh, this giant today Uh, We all face, and and we all will face it on a regular basis. It is the giant that beat David, and it is the giant that took David out. And when we look at David in the Old Testament, David is the hero. I mean, he is the uh, by far most famous king in the entire history of Israel. If you went to Israel today and walked up down the street, you would see the King David Hotel and the King David this and the King David that. And, uh, I mean, he, he still to this day is the most beloved king of Israel, a hero in the Old Testament, a man after God's own heart, uh, the, the one that wrote many, if not most, of the Psalms. But like every other character in the Bible, except for one, he's far from perfect. And uh, he, he was a sinner just like you and our sinners. He slew Goliath. He conquered rebellion. He conquered the giant of loneliness. But when it came to this giant, it was his weak point, and it took him out. And, and the giant we're going to look at today is the giant called temptation, and, and probably the most deadly and dangerous because we all face the giant of temptation. No one is exempt uh, from battling Uh, temptation. We all face it. In fact, most of us face it daily. But this one giant left alone, if you do not defy it, if you do not slay it, if you do not behead it, it it will take everything from you. It will take your life. It will take your family. It will take your home. And and if you just push it down and push it down and push it down, you will become numb to it. But it is still there creeping as a silent giant ready to kill you. Now, one of the questions that has come out over and over and over is, Pastor, how do I know if it's, if it's the demonic or spirits that are leading me towards uh, this temptation or towards this particular sin, or it's just my flesh or, or my sin nature or the indwelling sin? And that question comes posed in a hundred different ways. But I, I want to do just a, a brief theological lesson for you this moment, and I want to show you what I believe is the way that we are made up. The Bible says that you and I are the house of God. 
right? And when we talk about the house of God today, it's not a building, and it's not bricks and mortar, and it's not a church. Uh, It's us. We are the temple of God. And and I think, and there's all kinds of views on this. One view says we are a dichotomy, and one view says we're a trichotomy. I think it's tri, uh, because I think it just makes more sense biblically that we are spirit, soul, and body. And if this is us, the house of the Lord, before we come to Christ, we have our spirit, which by the way is who we are. Our spirit is who we are. We are not human beings with temporary spiritual experiences. We are spiritual beings with temporary human experiences. The, the, the you that is going to go on forever and ever uh, without Jesus in hell or the you that's going to go on forever and ever with Jesus in heaven is your spirit. It is your spirit man. That's who we are. And, and your spirit before you come to Christ is possessed by the devil. Possession means ownership. That means he owns you before you come to Jesus. In your soul, Clinicians call the soul the mind, will, and emotions, okay? And so I'm going with that today, that your soul is your mind, will, and your emotions. It is distinct and different from your spirit. In your soul, you have a sin nature. That is the way that you were born. You and I were born into sin. We also have flesh, which is the learned behavior that comes from the sin nature. And then if we have uh, iniquity, not everyone has iniquity. Most of us today have iniquity. Iniquity is that that is passed down from the fathers from the third and the fourth generation. God said in the second commandment, I will visit the iniquities of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. So this is the house before Christ, before you give your life to Jesus Christ. This is the house after you give your life to Jesus Christ. Your spirit now belongs to Jesus. He is the possessor of your soul. You are not possessed by the devil any longer. You are possessed by God and in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within your spirit, and, and that is inhabited in you. God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit now lives in your spirit and bears witness with your spirit. I personally believe that your sin nature is cut away, that you no longer have a sin nature. The Bible says all the old is gone. Behold, everything is new. The picture of circumcision in Scripture in the Old Testament is the picture in the New Testament of the circumcision of the heart, that God cuts away the sin nature when you give your life to Jesus Christ. That does not mean that you don't have a flesh. You still have flesh, which is the learned behavior that you learned because of the sin nature. Now, whether you come to Christ at 4 or 84, you still have flesh that you have to deal with. There's still enemies in the land that, that you have to contend with and deal with. And if you had iniquity before, you still have iniquity when, when you come to Christ until you deal with that. Now, I, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to spend most of our time in, in these two chapters. And here's what I want to say to you. That the promised land, I've been pitching this illustration to you, that that the whole Old Testament, this whole journey into the promised land in the Old Testament is a type and a shadow for believers today. That there's a promised land for believers today that we are to take and that we are to claim. In the Old Testament, God said it's yours, right? That was the land of Israel, right, and all the surrounding areas. He said it's yours. I've made it for you. I've given it to you. It has your name on it, but you have to go and take possession of it. The same thing is true for us today as New Testament believers. The promised land is not a type and shadow of heaven. Okay, we're not taking heaven. Heaven's already, all the victories won in heaven. The promised land for us today is an overcoming life. It is a life of victory. The promised land in the Old Testament had enemies in it. The promised land in the New Testament has enemies in it. Heaven has no enemies in it. Are you flowing with me today and understanding what I'm trying to teach you? That from the position of the spirit man, that's who we are forever and ever 
what Jesus completed in us when he came and saved us. We received the fullness of the Godhead in the person of Jesus when we gave our life to Jesus Christ. He dwells within us. We are residents of the Holy Spirit. From that position, from that beachfront, we now go do battle in the soul. Are you flowing? We go to the soul, the mind, will, and emotions. From the spirit, we go take the soul. There are enemies there. Numbers 33, 55 says that if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, they will become irritants in your eyes and thorns in your flesh. You heard that before? That's right out of Paul, that they will become irritants in your eye and thorns in your flesh if you don't drive the inhabitants of the land out. There are inhabitants in our soul. We got to drive them out. And God has given us the authority to do that. He's given us the victory to do that. And, and we need to battle those giants in the land and claim it all under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at these two chapters of Scripture today in the life of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and, and 12. It's honestly one of the saddest stories in all of the Bible. If you read uh, fiction and, and you read uh, drama and, and stories play out, uh, this, is, this is an unbelievable drama. You talk about the rise and the fall and the rise of, of a leader and a hero in, in literature. Uh, man, David is so respected and he's so revered. You read his Psalms, which, by the way, I failed to mention it at 9. I, I think you ought to read Psalm uh, 51 and 32 in light of the Scripture today. Don't read it in here. But, but when you get home, read those two chapters of Scripture. Both of those Psalms are related to the fall of David to Bathsheba and is coming out of that and, and the ground that he is taking back. You read the Psalms and you see the heart of David. You see the heart of this man of God. But, but here in the story, he's at his lowest and he's at his weakest. And when you read the story, you cringe. And if you speak the stories, you say, no, David, don't. And don't go there and, 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 and don't do that. But as we read the story today, I don't want you to focus your eyes on David. I want you to turn your eyes inward. And I want, to think, I want you to think about yourself. And I want to think about the battles and the giants that you face. I want you to think about the temptations that you face and, and realize that that giant wants to take you out as well. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city. Now, it's important for you to understand what's happening here. One chapter early, earlier, the Ammonites and the Arameans are fighting the Israelites. And the battle is at a stalemate until David shows up on the scene. And when David shows up on the scene, they, they begin to uh, defeat the Arameans, and, and he chases the Ammonites out, and, the, and they run from the Israelite army. And so what David does is he goes home, and now he sends Joab, the leader of his army, out to fight the Ammonites. But what does David do? The Bible says, and I want you to underline it, it says he stayed home. And he stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now pay attention here, because David had some of his greatest successes in the context of this story. He, he is kicking out the giants of the land. His army is stronger than all of the armies of his foes. He has slayed giants. He is teaching his men to slay giants. He is mopping up the enemy and clearing out the enemies, and he is doing the will of God. But it's at that moment, and so oftentimes in the life of a believer, it is on the heel of success, it's on the heel of victory that the enemy comes and, and brings the greatest temptation, but it's a trap from the enemy. Look at verse 3. He sent someone to find out, sorry, back up, verse 2, went too fast. Late one afternoon at his midday rest, 
which nothing good comes out of that, right? I mean, midday rest, late in the afternoon, he's getting out of his bed. And he was walking on the roof of his palace, and he looked out over the city, and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. I don't believe this was a mistake. I believe he knew the woman would be there. And so many times what we do is we place ourselves at the doors of temptation. And in our flesh and in our uh, pride, we think that we can flirt with sin and we can flirt with temptation and we can flirt with temptation, that we can stick our toe in it and we can pull it out and, and that we can, we can play around uh, w- with temptation, just take a peek or just take a test. Uh, listen to me, it is a trap. Verse 3, look at it. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Who are these two people? Well, if you did a search in Scripture for these two people, what you're going to find out is remarkable, that these two men are listed in a couple of chapters of Scripture, 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles 11. Both of those chapters of Scripture list what's called David's mighty men. These are the mighty, mighty, mighty men, the elite of the elite, bodyguards. Story after story, book series after series are written about David's mighty men. These are his closest ones, his personal bodyguards, and these two men are listed in the mighty men of David. In other words, when he heard that, he should have said, Bathsheba is the daughter of one of my mighty men. Bathsheba is married to one of my mighty men that absolutely I should not go there. I should not have anything to do with it. They are my trusted servants and my troops. Not going there, but look at verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Verse 5, later when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. Now, I'm not going to give you a biology lesson here. But if you understand the cycle and the way that God set that up and the way that this played out, in order for her to be pregnant, this episode went on for at least a couple of weeks. This was not a drive-by. This was not a one-night stand. He had jumped into the world and into the bed of sin. And as we read this story, I want to show you something that I'm calling the spiral of sin. And we're going to flip over to James in a minute. I'm going to show you it again in the book of James. But it's different than this cycle of repentance we've been talking about that flows all the way through the Old Testament. The cycle is that the children of God rebel. They face consequences and punishment. They repent. They are forgiven. And then they rebel again. And this cycle happens over and over and over all throughout the Old Testament. This is different. It's not the cycle of repentance. It's a spiral of sin. And you're going to see things get worse and worse and worse for David. It starts with temptation. Write that one down. The spiral of sin starts with temptation. It's the first step. David placed him in the path of temptation, himself in the path of temptation willingly. But make no mistake. Listen, we can try to avoid temptation, and we should avoid temptation. But you are going to be tempted. All of us are going to face temptation. Now, remember, we explained where temptation comes from. Flip back over to James chapter 1. And I want to show you again how James points this out perfectly and explains it to us perfectly. Verse 13, uh, 14, and 15. Verse 13. Remember, when you're being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Underline it, star it, plant it deep in your heart, deep in your mind, live your life with that understanding. God does not tempt his children. He is not the author of temptation. It does not come from God. Now, look what he says. Verse 14, temptation comes from our own desires. 
That's where this spiral begins. We have these desires. That's the flesh. That's iniquity that is planted in us from, from generations past. And, and these, these, these evil desires can do three things, three verbs there. They can entice us. They can drag us away. And they can give birth to sinful actions, which is the next step in this spiral. you got temptation. The next step is sin. And, and, and as you watch this play out, these give birth to sinful actions. And what the sinful actions do, it gives birth to death. It starts with temptation. The temptation starts with the desires within us. And they're put there by iniquity. They're put there by our flesh. We all have propensity towards a certain sin. And you hear me when, when we say that the iniquity passes down. Iniquity is different than sin. And the illustration I've given you is that, that, for example, adultery is sin. Iniquity is lust. And you think you can leave the lust there and say, well, I've never committed adultery. If you leave the lust there, it will pass on to your children and your children's children. You have to pull that out at the root. And, and temptation is not a sin. It's not a character flaw to, to be tempted. It's acting upon that impulse that is a sin. And this scheming that David was doing and this plotting that David was doing, when, when we act on that temptation, we give into the second step, temptation, second step, sin. In James, we saw that, that we are enticed and dragged away by our desires. Those are fishing terms. It's like a fish getting caught on a hook. And, and then when it takes that bait and it swallows that uh, lure or uh, fly or whatever it is, our desires and our temptations will hook us and they begin to drag us away. And, and there's a moment during the temptation when we give in to that where defeat is almost guaranteed to the point that we give in to those desires and we jump after it. And what happens when we sin, and there are plenty of consequences that come with sin. For David, it was that Bathsheba was now pregnant. And we're going to see where that takes him and where that goes. For you, it, it, it may be different. But what happens when we sin is the third step, consequences. And make no mistake, sin leads to consequences. And, and that's the way that it plays out. If you're caught speeding, you're, you're likely going to get a ticket. If you're caught stealing, there is a penalty. If you're caught in the act of murder, uh, you, you may face the death penalty. But not all sins lead to the police standing outside your front door, right? And even though you may not be caught by the authorities, make no mistake, when you sin, you are caught. And just as a fish takes that lure and doesn't realize that he is caught and is swimming with a lead on the line out into the water, when that fisherman takes that, in this case, when the enemy takes that and sets that hook, it comes into you and there is a barb there that grabs a hold of you. And even if the consequences are not at hand, they're coming because sin has caught you and you have given in to temptation. And some sins seem so simple because the consequences are so light that, that you can lie once and you got away with it. Right, I did it, and I'm free. But the consequences may not show themselves till later. Every sin has a consequence. Why? Because the enemy is trying to get us to sin. That's his goal. And in sinning, we will be hooked and dragged away like a dead fish. The enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And sin is such that the consequences may not show themselves till later, but they always lead us down a dead-end road. And it's a spiral that sucks us in and leads us to death. Look what happened to David, verse 6. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. What is David doing here? He, he's hoping Uriah goes home for business time with his wife. 
He, he's hoping this will play out and, and that he will go and sleep with his wife. And if that happens, he's scheming this, that all of his problems will go away and they will vanish and he will have all this covered up. But listen to me, even if that had happened, David's still hooked by temptation. David still has something to deal with at this moment, and he's still heading down this spiral of sin. He's still being sucked down into the drain, but he's not looking the one place that he can find true washing. He's not looking for the one place that he can find cleansing and repent. He's not even considering God in his plans. There's no mention of God in his plans. And what happens to David's big plans? Look, look, let's keep reading. Verse 9. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Do you see the irony in this? That David, King David, should have been at war, taken more ground to be called the promised land, and he stayed home, and he should have been out there with his soldiers, and now he's brought this one home who's sleeping with the palace guard, and David is in the palace. I mean, the irony of this. And David calls Uriah before him, and he says, how come you're not going home to your wife? Uriah says, I couldn't do that. Not with Joab and, and all the other men out in the battle fighting the battle. I, I couldn't do that. And you can just see David's heart breaking here. Realizing I should be at war. And I, I'm trying to cover up an affair. But this man is more righteous than me and I'm the king of Israel. And just before you think it's going to get better and David's going to confess and he's going to get out of this spiral and he's going to make things right and he's going to take care of the situation and make amends, it gets worse. Which temptation leads to sin and, and sin leads to consequences and consequences lead to desperation and in desperation, where does that lead? It only leads to more sin. Romans chapter 1 would be a great place for you to illustrate that in, in your lives. In, in verse 24 uh, he says, so God abandoned them. Paul says, so God gave them over. That, that would be an amazing study in Scripture to go study all the times where it says God gave them over. Where God gave them over to their sin, God gave them over to their desires, he gave them over to their evil. To, he gave them over to what they wanted to let them face the consequences that come with what they want. And, and he gave them over. In Romans 1 it says he abandoned them to do whatever shameful things were in their hearts. And whatever their hearts desired, and as a result, they did vile things. And as a result, they did degrading things with each other's bodies. And you just go, don't read it now, but read Romans 1 later and see where that path takes you. That's not white lies and, and, and small things. That's not where sin takes you. Sin leads to more sin. To cover up the sin that you had and sin upon sin upon sin. Three times in that chapter of Scripture, Paul says, he, God gave them over. What was the punishment? More sin. And God's saying, that's the path you want to go. You want to choose to do it without me. I'm going to let you do what you want to do. And this is what's going to happen. And it will destroy you. Child of the king, it, it will destroy you. And you have a choice there. You can repent or you can cover it up. And we've been using this illustration all along of the righteous garden of God, that we're supposed to be the righteous garden of God. And we've been talking about that, that there are things in our lives past that put there through iniquity, put there through lifestyle, put there through sin, that we've opened ourselves up and given ground to the enemy. And these weeds are in our life. And that you can, you know, you can clip them off and you can tear them off and you can, you know, try to make it look good from the surface, but, but it, it, it's still there. 
And they're still there at the roots. In fact, what many believers do is they take the word and they try to push all that down and they try to cover all that up and they push it down with the word and they push it down with the word and they push it down with the word, which gives you temporary and sometimes long-term victory. But, but the fact of the matter is that's still there. And there are roots in our lives. And what we are to do with the word is we are to go down deep with the word and we are to pull it out by the roots. Four weeks ago, we did this illustration, and I pulled these things out by the roots, and they were laying here on the side of this aquarium. And this week on Thursday, I came in to look at it, and they were all shriveled up and dead and brown, but they weren't dead. They looked dead, but they weren't dead. And if you took the root bulb and you looked at it, it was still alive, and there was still life in it. And had you put water in it, had you put it back in, it would have begun to grow again. But we got to pull that stuff out by the roots, and we not only pull it out by the roots, we got to plant the word in it. And we got to fill it as the righteous garden of God that, that our lives would bear fruit and the, bear the fruit of God. And you remove it and you extinguish sin's effect on your life. The devil, and here's what I'm convinced of, more today than I ever have been in my life. One of the greatest tools of the enemy in the church of Jesus Christ today is that the devil has made it a shameful thing for the children of God to ask for help. And when you think through that in your spirit and the core of who you really are, you realize how silly that is. That that's flesh talking, that that's your soul talking, that that's the enemy talking, that is not God talking, and that is not the spirit of God talking, that it's a shameful thing. There is nothing shameful about a child of the king saying to the king, I need help. And there are things trying to take over in the land that belongs to you. Would you kick it out and would you get it out? And would you help me to walk in the victory and the freedom that, that I, I deserve, that I, I belongs to me, that I am inheriting as a child of the king? There's nothing shameful about a believer saying to its brothers and sisters in Christ, I need help. Could you help me take this ground back from the enemy? And that ought to be the, the M.O., for a body of believers. That ought to be the MO for a group of believers saying, there are things in my life I got to get out. And I need help getting it out. Would you help me get these things out? God, oh God, would you bring your light and shine it in my heart that I would see the things that are there that do not please you, that we could pull those things out and do battle. You go on and read the rest of chapter 1 of Romans. You'll see this sin just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And the spiral of sin goes down and down and down and it gets faster as you go into more sin and more sin and more sin. But what does David do? He tries to get Uriah again to go sleep with Bathsheba, but it doesn't work. And he invites him for a great feast. He gets, gets him drunk. And then he sends him home drunk, but Uriah sleeps on the couch. And over and over and over again, David is getting desperate and the spiral is going faster and faster until he decides there's only one way out, which you would think is to confess and to get right and to come back to God, but that's not where he goes. David sends Uriah back to the front lines with a letter for Joab. And the letter said, take Joab into the battle where it's the fiercest and the fighting is the worst and put him on the front lines and then have the rest of the army pull back and he will be killed. And here's the king of God, the man of God, the man after God's own heart, commissioning the death of one of his mighty men. And it all started when David was unwilling or unable to fight the giant. And I've told you before that sin will cost you more than you want to pay, and it will take you further than you want to go, and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. 
And he got in that spiral of sin, and it went further and further and further. And, and he used sin to cover up more sin. And God gave him over to his own desires, and eventually it led to death. And you read the story and the consequences of his actions. It, it, it was not just lust. It was lust that led to adultery, which led to lies, which led to murder, which led to uh, death, which led to other soldiers dying in the, in the war. A whole nation was affected, increased violence in the kingdom of, of Israel. Then the baby that Bathsheba is now pregnant with dies, and, and David's own household rebels against him. And you watch this generational iniquity pass down that David let into his house and David let into his family and death upon death upon death and David gave in to the giant of temptation and many people lost but you mark it down I can tell you one thing on that day the enemy won in David's life and you see how bad it went for David and I just want to ask you do you want that in your life? do you want to be sucked down into the drain of sin? You want Satan to kick your tail. You want to get stuck in that spiral. If you do, I just want to show you three things from the life of David that will ensure your defeat. That will ensure your defeat. So I'm, I'm teaching from the negative perspective for a minute. In a minute, I'm going to flip it over to the positive. But from the negative perspective, I, I want to show you three things that ensure your defeat. Number one, neglect God's purpose for your life. You want defeat? Neglect the purpose of God for your life. Look back at verse 1. In the spring of the year when the kings normally go to war, that was the time that God had commissioned them from the position and the beachfront that God had given them to go take more land, to go take more land. That's the promised land. I've given it to you. Drive the enemies out. In the springtime, God had declared the kings were to go to war. But David said, I'm not going. I'm staying home. And instead of following the Lord, he did what he wanted to do. Instead of desiring God above all else, he desired his own plan above God. So if you want to face defeat, just ignore God's calling and purpose for your life. It will lead you down the path uh, of defeat. If, if you want to ensure defeat, don't find your identity in who God is. You want to ensure defeat? Find it in something else. Look all around you and give a jealous eye to your neighbor's successes. Think about the things that God has not called you to do. Focus all of your energy on what others have designed you to do. Ignore completely the way that God has made you. And by all means, find, don't find your identity in Christ. You want to ensure defeat in your life? Don't try to cultivate that calling that God has on your life. Don't try to cultivate the purpose that God has on your life because if you do, you'll find fulfillment in life and you'll find satisfaction. You want defeat, ensure it by taking your eyes off of how God designed you to be and, and live a life that's dissatisfied, discontent, and bored. And in that state, you will, just like David, find yourself on a rooftop wandering looking for trouble. And when you go look for trouble, you will find it. You want to ensure defeat? Don't, don't attempt to glorify God in all that you do because you'll find your desires will change. And instead of being selfish and self-centered, you'll be God-glorifying and other-centered. And you won't give the enemy a foothold in your life. Because if you ask the question, how does this glorify God of everything, then you'll find yourself focusing on God and his desires instead of your own desires. So if you want to fail, rehearse it over and over and over again in your life and in your mind. Focus on the giant. You want to fail. I've told you before the theologians teach that or said that you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair, which is a great way to illustrate temptation. You can't prevent temptation from coming, but you dwell on it, you focus on it, you, you, you fixate on it, 
You're in big, big, big trouble, and you will let the giant defeat you, which is the second way to ensure defeat is to focus on your giant. You may think, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. In order to beat my giant, I have to face it. I have to focus on it. Listen, David didn't focus on Goliath. Go read it again. David looked past Goliath to God. He knew this was God's battle. He knew that God was going to give him the victory, and in fact, the only victory would come through God, and that it was all about God, and he knew that his God was bigger than him, and his God was bigger than that giant, and he would give him the victory. You want to beat temptation, quit focusing all your attention on temptation. Instead of focus on Jesus who will bring you out of it. I've never met a victorious uh, man, believer, who said, I beat lust by saying, I'm going to beat lust, I'm going to beat lust, I'm not going to lust, I'm going to beat lust. That's not how you beat lust. That's a surefire way to end up in lust. The way you beat lust is you focus on God. You take your attention off of the giant, you put your focus on God and say, God, you're bigger than that. You're a giant. You're so good and you're so big and you're so mighty and you're so glorious. And all of a sudden my attention is on God and I am worshiping him and I am focused on God Almighty. Look at verse 2. It says, as David looked out over over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. I believe that David went up on that rooftop often. And I think he'd seen that bath. And he went up there in the morning and looked around and there was no one there. And He went up late at night before he went to bed and there was no one there. And finally he just said, I'll stay home from war so that I can go out in the midday. And you guys go fight the battle. And he took a nap and got up from his mid-afternoon nap and walked out on that balcony and he saw her and he had planned this thing out and he gave in to his desires and he saw her and he wanted her and he planned to get her alone and no self-control is playing out in David's life. And if you have a strong life of discipline and self-control, you, you're not looking for temptation. You're not looking for ways to feed those desires in, in, in your heart. You, you will be looking for ways to mature spiritually. Spiral of sin, spinning out of control. Third way to ensure defeat is to remove accountability from your life. You want to make sure that you get your tail kicked? Isolate yourself. Look at verse 1 again. David sent Joab, the Israelite army, to fight, and David stayed behind in Jerusalem. He stayed home alone, and he isolated himself. Joab, his most trusted advisor, the leader of his army. Uh, the Bible says, and the Israelite army. Other translations say, his servants and his mighty men. He sent them out to war. The accountability and the encouragement in his life. He sent them away, and he got all alone. Those were his bodyguards, the best of the best, his special forces. They'd fought side by side with him in every battle. But now David is isolating himself, keeping himself all alone. You want to make sure you're defeated? Isolate yourself from those that care about you instead of insulating yourself with godly friends who can help you. Build a life of shame and regret, one that rejects others and wants to be alone. You want to be defeated? That's the life you will build, one that puts you out on a corner all by yourself. And we've said it over and over and over again, the way the enemy attacks, the way the praying enemy attacks is he separates you from the flock. He separates you from the herd so that he can hamstring you and take you out. I want to show you a passage of Scripture, and I want to shift my attention to the positive. I want you to go to James chapter 4. I'm going to ask the musicians to come and play at this time, too. And I, I want to read you this passage of Scripture in James chapter 4.
The heading in my Bible says drawing close to God, which is the prescription to slaying giants, drawing close to God. Listen to what James says. And by the way, who is James written to? Huh? Believers. This is not a pagan group of people he's writing to. This is people in the church, living in the church. And by the way, it's not Old Covenant, in case you want to play that little theological game with me. This is New Covenant. This is the New Testament church. James is the pastor. This is for believers. This is for people who are walking with God in victory with God. Look at what he says in James 4. What is causing the quarrels and fights inside of you? What, isn't it the whole army of evil desires within you? Giants in the land. This war of desires within you. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous for what others have, and you can't possess it, so you fight and quarrel to take it away from them. And yet the reason you don't have what you want is that you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask God, you, you, you don't get it because your whole motive is wrong. You want what will give you pleasure. Rather than bringing glory to God, you adulterers. This is the church. He's not talking to a bunch of unfaithful, immoral people. He is talking to the church and he's calling them adulterers. Why? They're committing spiritual adultery. Their allegiance is divided between God and the world, between God and the enemy. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, that if your aim is to enjoy this world, you can't be a friend of God. What do you think the Scriptures mean when they say that the Holy Spirit, whom God has placed within you, the Holy Spirit of God, these are people that have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. He's jealous for you. And he's jealous for your faithfulness. He gives us more and more strength to stand against the desires. As the scriptures say, God sets himself against the proud. But he shows favor to the humble. Eight imperatives. And the next four verses. Seven, eight, nine, and ten. While they don't stand alone. They agree with the whole counsel of Scripture. But there is a plan found in these four verses to slay giants from and to walk in victory with. And I want to show you what they are. And I'm laying groundwork here because I'm about to come and lead you in a prayer doing these eight things. Number one, submit yourself to God. That's a rank terminology there in Scripture. It's military terminology. In the military, you unconditionally surrender to the rank over you. And in the army of the Lord, we surrender unconditionally to the Lord Jesus. We submit ourselves under his authority. And, 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 we, and by the way, I think submission is more than obedience. It involves humility. And we place ourselves there, submitting ourselves to God. Imperative number two is to resist the devil. He's talking to believers. The devil, you know, can't mess with believers. That's a lie, folks. It's a lie. He's telling believers right here to resist the devil. Why? Because the devil is after you. 
How did Jesus resist the devil? By the way, that goes back to that whole passage of Scripture again of, you know, the devil can't be where God is. And Job, he's in the throne room, has access to the throne room. With Jesus, he's battling him face to face. Beyond that, to say that the devil can't be where God is, think through that. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. To say that the devil can't be where God is means the devil can't exist. It's so futile. When you go down that path, resist the devil. How did Jesus resist the devil? With the word. It is written at every juncture in that battle with temptation as the devil tempted Jesus. By the way, he's the author of temptation. And he uses our own desires as the lure to get us to bite the bait. Resist the devil. You need an it is written in your heart, in your mind, on the tip of your tongue for every temptation that you will face. Imperative number three, draw close to God. Draw up close to the heavenly Father. The Bible says he'll respond to that and he will draw close to you. It's the core of who you are, drawing up. Your spirit that the Holy Spirit lives in, bearing witness with the Holy Spirit of God, and and this unity happening there. Number four, wash your hands. I, I think what he's saying there is this is the lifestyles that we've lived in. Lifestyle sin that has opened us up to lifestyle demons. And we got to purify our hands and wash our hands and, and, and walk away from those actions and walk away from those things and, and allow God to have all the ground that we've given the enemy in our life because of what we've done. Number four is purify your heart. I, I think what James is saying there is that the, these are our inward motives and that we need our heart For the Hebrew, the heart was the core. It it, it was in the stomach. It wasn't in your chest. It wasn't an organ that pumped blood through your body. The heart was the soul. And and that you purify that, the wounds that we've experienced in life. Some scholars would call it wounded personalities. That, 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 That you take all of those wounds that have been inflicted upon you and you forgive the wounder. And you ask God to heal all of those wounds and you give them to him. You quit nurturing them and thinking you can do better with them than God can. You give them to him. Number six is to unify your loyalty. The New Living Translation that I was reading from says that your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Many translations there use the word double-minded. I think it's very unfortunate that that's the translation that many scriptures have. Because just as the Hebrews thought the heart was the soul, uh, the, the soul is, was this core. Clinicians call it the mind, the will, and the emotions. It is the soul. And I don't think it's that it's a wishy-washy person here. That's not what James is saying to the church. He's talking about somebody who who is divided in their loyalty. 
in their heart of hearts, in their soul, it's divided between allegiance to the enemy and allegiance to God. And, and it's adultery. Spiritual adultery is what James is saying. The word is disukos in the Greek. Die to. Sukos soul. Not mine. That your soul is chasing after two things. It belongs to two masters. That you got to take that soul and unify it and make it an audience of one. God Almighty. That he is the authority in my mind and my will and my emotions. And I'm going to unite all of that to the audience of, of, of one, Jesus. Number seven is to repent. And he uses words like tears and sorrow and deep grief and sadness and gloom. And, and my prayer today is that God would let you smell the stench of your sin for a moment. We certainly don't want to stay there, but there are moments in our lifetimes where God allows us to climb down into the pit and to smell it. The stench, the filthiness of our sin. In fact, the Bible says our righteousness is filthy, stinking rags. Repentance is a gift from God. You can't conjure that up. It's not a matter of me conjuring that up and saying, I just want to be sad about my sin, or I just want to weep, or I want to cry, and I, I want to be given to emotion in this. No, no, no. When you, well, I believe when you walk through these first six imperatives, that God gives you the gift of repentance. And it's a gift that you receive from Him, and all of a sudden, you are broken over the things that you put on Jesus that he died for in his perfection, in his sinless state, that he went there and he not only took it, he became it. And the one who'd never known the displeasure of the Father, now the Father turns his back on his Son for your sin and my sin. And that God would give us the gift of repentance. then eight is to humble yourself. He kind of bookended all eight of these with humility. Submit yourself to God and humble yourself before him. And it's as you come out of that with victory and as you come out of that with freedom, don't come out marching saying, I've got authority over the demonic. No, Jesus said, don't rejoice that you have authority over the demonic. You do. But don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And humble yourself realizing it was God who beat the giants through your surrender and through your willingness. And so what I want to do is just lead you in a prayer. And if you've not been here with us the last four weeks in this series, which has been unique to this series, I've been asking in the chapel and in here and even those watching online for you to stand and for you to bow your heads and for you to lift your hands up towards heaven as we pray these lengthy prayers. It's not the words of the prayer. 
In other words, you're just repeating these words. There, there's no victory in that. The, the victory comes from you meaning it and praying it to God and letting Him gain the victory over the giants in your life. So I'm going to ask you if you want to participate today, would you stand to your feet? And would you bow your head and would you lift your hands towards heaven? And right where you are, would you just begin to talk to your heavenly Father? Just talk to Him. And there's some of you today under the sound of my voice, whether you're in this room or in the chapel, some of you driving down the road, listening to it on an iPhone. And the enemy today is telling you that you're too far gone. It's a lie. The enemy told David at every juncture in that spiral, you're too far gone. At any point in that juncture, David could have turned around and got out of that spiral. And he did, by the way. There were a lot of steps he went through, but he didn't have to. He got out of that spiral. And after Bathsheba, and after Uriah, and after all of that, God called him a man after my own heart. And many of the Psalms that set people free today, that is the inherited Word of God, uh, inspired Word of God, that has been inherited by the children of the King, came after. Don't believe the lie. You're not too far gone. And if you would just say, God, I'm going to trust you in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my rebellion, in the midst of my denial, I'm coming to you. I want you to stand up. And I want you to participate with me. And would you just say, dear Lord, I submit myself to you today. You are God, and I am not. And I fully place myself under your authority and your lordship. I unconditionally place myself, all of me, every part of me, I humble myself and I exalt you in my life. Today I resist the devil and I declare that greater is he that is in me. Would you give me personal words from your word that I need to counter the specific attacks and the specific temptations coming my way? Help me to know, love, memorize, and use your word. God, I draw close to you today. And I ask that you take my core, the one that is saved, the one that is teachable, the one that is soft, pliable, responsive to you, that you thought up before the foundation of the world, and you love dearly. Hold me close to you. I want to snuggle up to you and place my head on your chest and hear your heart beat for me. Lord, today I wash my hands. I repent of all of my sinful actions. 
And would you just name all of the ones the Lord gives you? Every sinful action he brings to your mind, name it and repent of it. All of the steps in the spiral that you've been in, name all of them and give them to God. Wash my hands. And I repent of sin and sinful lifestyle. Name them. And would you just say, I give all the ground that I've given to the enemy back to you, Jesus. It's yours. Would you claim it? I ask that you remove anything and everything that I've allowed in or on my life that's not from you. Lord, today I purify my heart. I ask that you cleanse all my inward motives. And I give all of the wounds inflicted upon me to you. All physical wounds, emotional wounds, spiritual wounds that I've ever encountered. I ask for you to heal all of them and take all of them. I forgive those who've wounded me. And I place all of these wounds on the cross. I release them to you. I ask for your healing touch to minister life to all of me. And Lord, today, I give all of my loyalty to you. I ask that you unify my loyalty. I don't want to commit spiritual adultery. I confess all of the iniquities of my fathers on both my father and mother's side as far back as I have to go. And I call it sin. And I confess it to you and ask for your cleansing and forgiveness. I ask that you kick out of my life anything passed down anything visiting me, my family, my children, and my children's children, fuse together all of my soul as one unit, totally surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, today, I repent of all my sin. Give me the gift of repentance genuine biblical repentance with tears and sorrow and grief I tell you I'm sorry Lord for the things I've added on Jesus on the cross Jesus thank you for taking on and becoming all of my sin, all my iniquity, all my failure. Thank you for dying on that tree in my place. Thank you for undergoing the displeasure of the Father 
and allowing your soul to be separated from the Father and even baptized in hell on my behalf. I humble myself, Lord, under your leadership. May your will be done in my life, my family's lives, and my church. In Jesus' name we pray. Together we all say amen. Amen. We're going to worship. Michael and Eden are going to lead us to the cross. And while we sing about going to the cross, I'm going to open up the altars in both here and in the chapel for you to come and pray and for you to do business with the Lord and for you to rejoice and what it is that God's given you and the freedom that he's provided for you. Let's worship him this morning.
today we pray you'd lead us there that our lives could be transformed by the renewing of our minds to who you are and who we are in you on what we have Father, we don't want to be like the generation with Moses. That spied out the land and was terrified by the enemies, by the giants in the land. That led to disobedience. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness and a whole generation dying off. Lord, we don't want to go there. be like the generation with Joshua that marches in and takes the ground that belongs to you our hearts minds and our emotions take us into the promised land Lord the overcoming life a life of victory freedom Father, from that place into a harvest field that is ripe with workers that have been set free. In Jesus' name we pray. And together we all say, Amen. Would you thank the Lord for victory? And victory?